This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome back to the show. I am Avery Kreiwold, your host, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. This is the third episode of the story of Iceland, and I am excited to move on to the next section of this series. The first two episodes were dedicated to fleshing out the general history of Iceland. Now the next two episodes will be dedicated to my personal favorite part, the technology. Namely, the energy technologies that have developed or been developed by the country of Iceland to enable the fast and efficient transition to renewable energy sources that Iceland underwent to get to where they are now. Geothermal and hydropower technologies clearly take precedent, so this first episode will be dedicated almost entirely to geothermal, and the next episode will tackle hydropower. We will also explore some of the other technological keys to success, such as the Icelandic methods of district heating. As an up-and-coming technology that has been mentioned a couple of times already in this season, and one of Iceland's most promising technologies of the modern day, we will also examine the carb fix process, how it was developed, and how it works, and just how effective it can be in other places around the world. We have quite a bit of ground to cover today, so let's get started. So in the last episode, I mentioned that geothermal energy developed from the foundation of warm swimming pools that were built to teach children how to swim in Iceland. Around the same time, farmers had begun connecting basic pipelines to geothermal well sites to heat their homes and farm buildings. As such, geothermal energy started out about as primitive as it gets, which makes sense. This was the very first iteration of the technology. Humans recognized a supply of heat in the geothermal waters connected that supply to a demand for heat for basic human operations, and put in place the basic technology to make that connection. These first systems were largely characterized by simple pipelines running from a well site to a use site. For the first geothermal pools in Iceland, hot water was pumped into the cities from sites outside of town. That hot water was mixed with cold to ensure safe and suitable temperatures, and the pools could be used. Simple as it gets. The first farmers utilizing this heat used metal piping that emitted heat into the home with the water running through it, or they could release steam from the piping systems to keep their homes warm. Either way, this was the very start, and it would only get more complicated from here. As for the energy, uh, people would do bathing and that kind of stuff for thousand years, uh, and then also maybe cooking when you have boiling hot springs. People would put their, their meat into, the, into that water and cook it. But I think that around uh, 1900 plus, uh, in the beginning of the 19th century, there people in Reykjavik actually took the initiative uh, by piping free-flowing water to a, like a hospital and uh, other applications. So that was primarily for heating houses. When you, when, when you live in a country like this one here, which is a pile of uh, volcanic rocks, they are very permeable, especially the most recent rocks. And whatever rain pours on them, it goes into the groundwater. And then you have these uh, super good uh, free-flowing uh, springs with mineral water year-round. So in parallel, about more than 100 years ago, uh, people in Reykjavik were developing the, the hot water that was free-flowing out of the ground. So this is the beginning. And uh, then in Reykjavik in particular, there was a company who was drilling for gold. And somebody was able to acquire that rig and start using it drilling for water, hot water. So in a way, uh, what the gold we had here was the hot water. And after that, uh, you couldn't stop the snowball. This took off. The heating system of Reykjavik very quickly became one of the biggest in the world. It, it was the biggest for centuries. Right now, China has taken over, but it was the biggest. And uh, it really, really contributed to the well-being of the people and uh, saved a lot of uh, foreign currencies that otherwise would have been used for buying either coal or, or oil for heating houses. So bear in mind that when you live this, this far up north, the heating season is almost all year. So, so this will be very costly if you do that with fossil fuel imported. And this was one of the pushes for developing the renewables in this country. 
That is the voice of my esteemed guest for the next two episodes, Grimjör Bjornsson. He's an Icelandic geophysicist with decades of experience in the geothermal sector. While I will be making use of his expertise to explain Iceland's development in hydropower as well, his passion and career have been made in the geothermal sector. Here is his introduction. I am Grimur, and uh, it may sound strange, I have been doing geothermal and only geothermal now for 35 years all over the world. I am Icelandic citizen, have been living here and uh, based in Iceland. Like everyone else, I am, you know, I want to make the life good for all the citizens of the, of the planet and especially how to deal with the global warming issues. So then I go to the University of Iceland for my bachelor degree in geophysics. And actually after that, I go to the UC California in Berkeley uh, for my geothermal reservoir engineering education. So I have a master's from there. And uh, when I come back from school in 87, I, I got a job on uh, doing uh, well logging uh, and well testing in geothermal wells here in Iceland. And I was very busy with that for about uh, 10 to 20 years. And then gradually, I see the world is much bigger than Iceland. Then uh, for two years, I worked for the uh, utility in Reykjavik. It's called uh, Reykjavik Energy. Then uh, I was part of a startup, Reykjavik Geothermal, doing uh, projects in, in, in Africa, especially in Ethiopia. And then after 2015, I am running my own consulting like a small firm, always busy. I am experiencing that uh, there is a lot of, of projects that are exciting and uh, have potential as a green energy source. And there are very few people that have my background and experience. So hopefully uh, I can contribute. And uh, like I said, I think I am working in every continent of the, of the planet except in South America and Antarctica. As I said in the previous history episode, there was very little hesitance in implementing geothermal heating especially, because it was very obvious, very early on, that this was the ideal solution to many of Iceland's expensive energy demands. But that is not the beginning of the story. We also went through a bit more of the history on how geothermal was implemented. In this episode, we are largely going to ignore external factors, focusing only on the development of the technology itself, as well as how, when, where, and why it was implemented. I'm going to do my best to associate each evolution and major development with a timeline of some sort, but the reality is there aren't a ton of sources for the Icelandic energy development timeline, and a good portion of them conflict with one another. So I'm doing my best here, but just a heads up that what I say might not mesh perfectly with what you know or can find online. So after the initial primitive uses of geothermal energy, what came next? Next, we have to pay some respect to the first use of geothermal energy in a functioning geothermal generator, which was built in Tuscany, Italy by Prince Piero Giorno Conti in 1904. At this point, it's important to know that the electromagnetic generator had been invented prior to this. As a refresher, a generator is a machine in which wires or other conducting materials are moved within a magnetic field to generate an electric current. Today, generators are constructed using highly conductive coils that are fast and efficient at generation and made of primarily copper wiring wound around a metal core. Rotating this arrangement very quickly inside of a stationary magnetic field is what produces the electricity that can be used in whatever applications you please. The technology was obviously not quite as developed and efficient in the days of our friend Prince Conti, but the concept was the same. The great thing about geothermal energy it came pre-packaged as steam, and if not steam, then very hot water which could easily be turned into steam. And at the time, steam drove the world. Steam turbines were the basis of energy generation everywhere. Whether they were powered by coal, oil, or soon to be geothermal, the concept was exactly the same. Like in, in the power in geothermal comes from mostly from the steam, so the steam will expand inside the turbine, and this was happening everywhere. Uh, the first turbine, geothermal turbine in Iceland was a refurbished one, small one from a sugar cane, like a plant in, in the Caribbean. So, so technology is always the same with the steam. As such, the system was simple, capable of producing electricity, but not a lot of it, not very fast, and not very consistently. This first system was built on a geothermal technology known as dry steam generation. Dry steam is a method of harvesting the natural heat of the earth that as it implies, does not use water at all. Thanks to the geography of the area, pipes could be drilled directly into the ground where hot steam was already present, free of water. 
that hot steam was channeled into a basic generator as described, and boom, electricity. It was only up from here. The next major development was the construction of a functioning power plant at the Geysers in San Francisco in 1921. It's not entirely clear the difference between Conti's generator and John D. Grant's power plant, other than the site at the Geysers grew to multiple sites and had a capacity of 250 kilowatts. The capacity of the Tuscany generator is never mentioned, but I assume it is significantly, significantly lower. All of that said, the technology remained the same, using dry steam, and it remained similarly unviable, shutting down shortly after because it just wasn't competitive. We're going to table the energy generation for a little while because 1930 was a big year for the development of the geothermal sector, marking the first use of a heat exchange system to use geothermal energy for house heating. This occurred in Oregon, where a man named Charlie Lieb implemented the first downhole heat exchanger. A downhole heat exchanger is kind of exactly what it sounds like, a heat exchange system that is located inside the borehole of a geothermal well. This was the first generation of geothermal heating technology. That would probably make a lot more sense if you knew what a heat exchange was, so let's explore. Heat exchangers are not rare, not at all. That's because they are fundamental to a ton of processes that are just normal for everyday life today. Refrigeration, air conditioning, coolant systems, pretty much anything that involves changing the temperature of something using another thing, that's probably a heat exchanger of some sort. They were invented in principle in the late 1800s and have been expanded on since. Some of the newer designs, like the shell and tube, we will revisit later, but the concept has been the same for a while. Heat exchangers are a method of transferring thermal energy between fluids without mixing the two fluids. Typically, they involve a housing for the fluid intended for heating or cooling inside of a housing for the fluid inducing heating or cooling. You can think of this like an open test tube filled with cold milk inside a glass of hot water. As long as the test tube is suspended such that the milk inside doesn't turn your hot water into a murky milk solution, you can call it a heat exchanger. If you leave the cold milk for a while, it will slowly heat up as the water cools down. That's an important part of this process. Each polar temperature will approach an equilibrium point somewhere in between their starting temperatures. The milk will never end up warmer than the water because the laws of thermodynamics would just simply never allow such a thing. In a heat exchanger, both fluids would be moving, ideally with a continual supply of both so that their temperatures would never equalize and the system can continue operating. Mr. Lieb used what could be classified today as a double pipe heat exchanger. In the geothermal well he drilled, he set up a casing with consideration for the natural convection of the hot geothermal water. I could explain how the casing factored in convection and cooling and all that complex stuff, but I would probably mess something up on that account, and I don't think I'm qualified to teach thermodynamics quite yet. Suffice to say, he was smart with it, so that the hot water in the cup kept moving and stayed warm. Into this well, he dropped a couple of pipes that went down, turned around, and came back up. Using this system, he could pump cold water directly from a cold water well or the city's supply, whichever he chose, down into the geothermal well. As the cold water traveled through the pipes that were submerged in hot water, the cold water heated up, and then that heated water traveled back around the bend, up the well, and into his house. The hot water was then used for hot water, and could be combined with something like a radiator for space heating inside the home. Fun fact, a radiator is another form of heat exchanger, where the hot fluid in the pipes is exposed to cooler air in the house, causing heat transfer, and therefore a warm, cozy apartment. From this description, you may be able to tell right away that we are far from the technology ceiling here. For example, the double pipe heat exchanger gives relatively little time and surface area for the heat transfer to take place, and the metal piping the whole way along made the system prone to heat loss on the way back. This was, however, the basis for the more advanced technologies we have today, so we have to give credit where credit is due. It was around this point in time, with the additional time required to deliver information overseas, that house heating in Iceland began in imagination. By 1930, an elementary school in Reykjavik, that I'm sure has a fantastic name, I just don't know where to begin for pronouncing it, was granted the honor of being the first public building in Iceland to be heated using geothermal energy. It wasn't long after this that the infrastructure supporting the transportation of the hot water was expanded. 
They added more pipes to the system, which allowed for 60 more personal dwellings to source heat from the same geothermal well as the elementary school. This was the beginning of a powerful transformation in the country. This interconnectedness, supplying multiple buildings with heat originating from one source, would be a significant factor in the continued development of geothermal heat in Iceland. This was district heating. First invented for a U.S. Naval Academy and first implemented commercially in New York, district heating functionally began in Iceland when those 60 dwellings were connected to the hot water source in Reykjavik. And with that, we have completed the basic system required to supply Iceland with clean and renewable space heating for every building in the country. Hot water is pulled out of boreholes around the country, no downhole heat exchanger this time, sent through insulated pipes for up to 50 kilometers, and is then stored in large, insulated underground containers where the hot water retains its heat for much longer than it ever needs to. When heat is needed for domestic hot water or house heating, that water is then sent through more insulated pipes, through some distributing and pump stations, and into or near a home or business. At the site is a heat exchange, where hot geothermal water conducts heat into the home's water supply, heating the water. The two water sources never mix, but heat is transferred between the two. It's a thing of beauty, and with that, hot water enters the home for use. The remaining geothermal water is then either drained into the sewage system for processing or channeled all the way back into the ground from whence it came. As the technology advanced, the state bought a larger drill rig and began installing more powerful pumps in the drill holes to increase the system outputs. By the end of World War II, 3,000 homes in Reykjavik were connected to the system. As the system branched outwards, with additional communities tagging onto the Reykjavik system alongside separate communities starting systems of their own, piping infrastructure became more reliable with better insulation. Water could retain heat more effectively and travel longer distances. With the shell and tube exchange becoming extremely popular in the field, the only difference between shell and tube and double pipe is pretty much the number of pipes. Instead of having a single test tube suspended in a glass, you could have 50 pipettes stuck in there. The pipettes would heat up much faster than the test tube because of an increase in surface area, allowing for more efficient conduction. That's pretty much the difference between a shell and tube and a double pipe. The design of the rigs, having a multitude of small tubes passing through a larger housing which carries the heating or cooling vessel, also allows for higher pressure applications. This combination of new technologies allowed Icelanders to dig deeper, exploit sites much farther from the cities, and increase the production of each borehole considerably. These new technologies ultimately allowed for 97% of the Icelandic population to source building heating from geothermal energy by the end of the 70s. This is not the end of the story for geothermal heating technologies, but it's all it took for Iceland to get where it is today. To continue, we have to learn a bit more about energy production, and before we do that, we should take into account why this worked so well in the country. Well, for a start, it was cheap, especially when comparing the abundant natural resources of Iceland, easy to access, to the expensive process of importing fossil fuels, geothermal district heating was simply economical. As Stefan and Grimur have both made clear, the initial transition away from fossil fuels in Iceland was not for environmental reasons. It was for money. This holds true to this day, in most cases. District heating is the most economically efficient method of heating a dense urban center, whether it be a hospital, or a city, or a university. Geothermal district heating is more difficult because it simply is more difficult to find adequate hot water sources to heat large swaths of urban centers outside of Iceland, but Sweden, Denmark, and other Nordic countries have already found success with the system. The rare nature of exceptionally hot water sources can make geothermal district heating more expensive, but in general, the efficiencies of scale and the effectiveness, reliability, and versatility of the system make the economic argument a pretty easy one. And where there is not sufficient geothermal heat for district heating, a technology born in the mid-1900s has re-emerged more recently that can bring geothermal heating to almost any home, anywhere. Brace yourself for a brief tangent on heat pumps. Heat pumps are gloriously simple, which is great for me since I have less to explain, but also great for everyone else 
because they are easy to understand, which makes them less intimidating, easier to implement, and also pretty adverse to technological challenges. There's not a whole lot that can go wrong with a heat pump. A heat pump is similar in concept to a basic heat exchange. It moves thermal energy from one place to another using non-contact fluids. In fact, heat pumps are generally made up of two separate heat exchanges linked by some other components. I should specify that there are also air source heat pumps, but because this episode is on geothermal energy, we will be focusing on ground source heat pumps. I think the best way to explain heat pumps is to first explain that heat pumps are a two-for-one in space conditioning. They can heat and cool your home at your command. And because heat pumps operate in the exact same way whether you're heating or cooling, let's say for our purposes you want to cool your house. In that case, your heat pump will function in nearly the exact same way as an air conditioner. There are a couple of essential concepts to understand in order to understand the larger heat pump system. First, you have to know how heat exchanges work, with thermal energy flowing from high to low concentrations against disconnected fluids. Great, we already know that. The next thing you need to know is that when fluids expand, their pressure drops and the temperature also decreases. This is another principle of thermodynamics. It's a universal rule. The opposite is also true. When fluids are compressed, the pressure increases along with the temperature. And finally, you have to know that a heat pump is a combination of two heat exchanges, one compressor, and one expansion valve. The fluid circulated is often water, but it can also be a but it can also be a refrigerant which transfers heat even more efficiently. Now stick one heat exchange in the ground, deep enough that the temperature is almost consistent all year round, usually 5 to 10 degrees Celsius, maybe 15, and then stick one heat exchange inside where a fan system can distribute the exchanged air around the house, and there you have it. In air conditioning mode, it works like this. Expanded gases in the indoor heat exchange absorb ambient heat from the indoor air. The warmer air then travels through insulated piping to the compressor, where the fluid is compressed and heats up even more. Now that the fluid is significantly warmer than ambient, and definitely warmer than the ambient temperature underground, it gets pumped to the underground exchange. In the underground exchange, the excess heat is naturally transferred outside the system to the surrounding ground. The cooler air continues its journey through the piping to an expansion valve, where the fluid expands once again, dropping further in temperature and allowing the fluid to absorb ambient heat from inside once again. In heating mode, the process is directly reversed, flowing through the compressor on the way in to heat the fluid further, and through the expansion valve on the way out to absorb more ambient heat from the ground outside. The whole process relies primarily on the natural flow of thermal energy, which is why it's such a great option for home and building heating. The operation cost consists mostly of electricity required to run the compressor. So this is another way of using geothermal energy to heat your home. And this is one of the most transformative technology developments of the sector, because now almost everywhere in the world can eliminate space conditioning from the list of fossil fuel requirements. As a personal action for climate change, utilizing a heat pump instead of a natural gas or even electric furnace is one of the most effective ways to reduce your household emissions. If you can do it, you should. Which of course is one of the biggest benefits of geothermal heating, a distinct lack of emissions. It makes decarbonization easy because it doesn't even rely on the energy grid to decarbonize as an electric furnace would. It's straight to zero carbon. Geothermal sources for heat are also incomparably reliable. Whether you use district heating, a ground source heat pump, or a good old-fashioned double pipe heat exchange, you will have access to the same heating resource every hour of the day, every day of the year, and it will generally last as long as you want it to. Geothermal wells can be depleted if heat extraction outpaces heat regeneration by natural means, but that imbalance can usually be recognized and righted well before the site was rendered unusable. None of this should convince you that geothermal heating is perfect. Whether through district heating or ground source heat pumps, no technology is perfect. Both methods of heating carry a heavy upfront cost. District heating is more easily palatable as the cost is incurred by a larger body and the cost distributed to consumers is low thanks to the long lifespan. Ground source heat pumps on the other hand can cost upwards of $10,000, which is a lot of money for the average homeowner. That cost will eventually return in the form of energy savings, especially if you can link a house or two and get those desirable efficiencies of scale, but that's still a lot of money to be paying up front. 
These systems do also have some greenhouse gas emissions from the natural storage of minerals and chemicals within the Earth's crust. Both gases and liquids extracted from geothermal wells can carry some harmful pollutants, including toxic materials like arsenic and mercury. While this is a rather uncommon issue and not particularly impactful even when present, it's still not ideal and can be dangerous and hazardous, so it's worth mentioning. Large facilities have been linked to seismic activity, which can obviously be dangerous, and it's a good bit of insight that even though we are seeking to protect the environment, implementing large infrastructure like this does still disrupt natural earthly systems that we have to remain aware of. But by far the biggest drawback to geothermal heating systems is the geographical and infrastructure requirements associated with them. District heating requires massive infrastructure developments that are expensive and take a long time, and sufficient geothermal resources are simply not available everywhere. As we've been over, this really doesn't apply to ground source heat pumps, which is what makes them so awesome. But since we haven't heard from him in a while, and he can say it better than I do, here's Grumier. For the space heating, it's generally easier because to make it work, the hot water that comes out of a well that you drill into the ground cannot travel very long distance. I would say maximum like 40, 50 kilometers because you are going to have cooling in the pipe on the way to the user. So, so the geothermal water the, is stranded energy. You, can't, you have to use it almost in the same location as where you have the reservoir. Right now, uh, not only in Iceland, I, I'm very excited about Europe that uh, there are so many opportunities in Europe for geothermal space heating that uh, what you will have to do is, first of all, uh, you map the uh, demand. Where is the potential market for the hot water on one hand? Then you will need a, a community who is willing to uh, destroy all the streeting and the sidewalks for uh, someone's in order to build the, the infrastructure of pipes. So hot water is energy. I mean, uh, we are powering our houses with copper lines in the ground, which are moving the electricity. But for geothermal to work, for heating, you have to build this new layer of infrastructure that is moving the, the hot water energy from the well to the houses. But again, this is well-known uh, concept and people can do it. They just need the will to do it. So the best thing to make it happen, which was the story here in Iceland, is that uh, the price of oil just went too high and the geothermal was less expensive. So I'm hoping uh, Europe is going to make this happen on a big scale and uh, ideally compensate for the big, big troubles with Russia and Ukraine and uh, the gas supply that is so important right now for heating houses in Europe. So, so for this to happen, I would say just a few years uh, for uh, confirming the resource. And then what is nice about geothermal is you can scale it up. So, so it's all about starting and then you scale it up. And I would say within five years, you can have maybe 100,000 people uh, with the heating service if there is a good resource that is not too expensive to drill. So there you have it, geothermal heating in a nutshell. On the district scale, it takes a lot of infrastructure and it's not necessarily available everywhere. And ground source heat pumps are sometimes worth the price of a new car, but nonetheless, both are fantastic options for modernizing and decarbonizing the heating and cooling sector. But this is not the end, my friend. Don't you worry, we're only halfway through our technologies for today. I believe the last we mentioned geothermal power generation was back in 1921 with our friend John D. Grant. Let's get back to that, shall we? From 1921 through to the end of the war, geothermal energy generation was largely at a standstill having very little development in the interim. In 1960, after a bit more research on steam turbines, drilling, piping, efficiency, and power transmission, geothermal energy became economically viable, which led to the first plant being established once again at the geysers and once again through dry steam generation. In 1969, Iceland would import technology, metaphorically, and build the first of their own geothermal plants, also using dry steam technology. The 70s and 80s would witness the development of two other prominent expansions on the dry steam formula, flash steam and binary. The method of energy generation remained the same throughout the three technologies, only the method of steam harvesting changed. In the steam turbine itself, the steam cools and expands as it moves through the system, and that expansion is what allows the process to net positive energy gains. To get the steam to that point, there are a couple of strategies. 
flash steam generators make up the majority of geothermal generation worldwide today, and they make up a good chunk of Iceland's geothermal power resources. Flash steam turbines pump superheated water up from underground. Superheated means hotter than its sea level boiling point. Because of that definition, as it's pumped up to the surface, it boils and turns to steam. This steam is then used in the same steam turbine as before. Binary turbines use an interesting technology to multiply the effectiveness of geothermal plants. Can you guess what it is? Heat exchange. It's a heat exchange. A binary turbine uses a heat exchange to transfer geothermal energy from the water to another fluid, which has a significantly lower boiling point than water. By this method, hot water that may not have been hot enough to produce steam on its own is able to transfer its energy to another medium that can. No energy input required except the little bit needed to run the heat exchange pumps and a whole lot of energy output. Binary turbines have become especially useful in areas with less powerful geothermal resources than Iceland, making use of lower temperature resources to generate what ends up being pretty similar energy yields. While not particularly useful in Iceland, where water temperatures are more than adequate, this technology has opened up geothermal energy to more places around the world. Finally, the last basic geothermal technology that was invented more recently to act as a framework is enhanced geothermal systems. Enhanced geothermal systems are, in essence, another answer to the problem of geothermal scarcity. These systems seek to solve not only the problem of insufficient heat, but also insufficient water. Instead of pumping up hot water from the ground to turn into steam of some kind, enhanced geothermal systems are implemented in hot underground places where there isn't any water to pump up. Instead, an injection well is drilled vertically. Cold water is then pumped down into that well. As the cold water descends into the hot earth, it expands, it expands extremely quickly, which creates fractures in the rock. Another well is drilled that will be used for production. As fluids are pumped down into the fractures of the rock, they heat up quickly and are pumped back up in the production well. There, it undergoes a process identical to a binary turbine, heat exchange and all, to produce steam and then energy. Right up front, I want to acknowledge that this practice especially can be environmentally harmful in some scenarios. Fracturing rock underground like this can lead to seismic activity. It's usually small, but continued fracturing can cause that activity to build and worsen. A site in Switzerland was cancelled in development for this very reason. So it's an option, and I'm putting it out there as information. It's not super relevant to the Iceland story specifically, and it's not an ideal solution for its other environmental impacts, but it does exist, so there you go. EGS has also been suggested for abandoned oil and gas wells, which have already undergone the fracturing process. This would make the technology more viable without having an outsized environmental damage. While these make up the vast majority of modern steam extraction techniques, the turbine itself has also advanced over the multiple decades it's been in use. Iceland has made great use of these developments in technology, contributing to some from their own expertise and retrofitting or building new plants with new technologies where required. The first notable category of steam turbine design is the reheat turbine. A reheat turbine operates in a pretty self-evident manner. Instead of pushing the steam through one set of turbine blades to generate torque, a reheat turbine typically reheats the steam after it passes through one turbine and partially condenses. That reheated steam must be almost entirely free of condensate before reheating, otherwise the steam becomes damaging to the blades. Once the steam is reheated, it flows through a different generation path and through a lower pressure turbine to generate additional torque and more electricity. The point of this system is simple. Maximize efficiency. If you can use almost hot water, again, by reheating it, instead of heating cold water from scratch, that is obviously going to require less energy input to make that happen. If I were making tea, and I had already made tea 5 minutes ago, I would use the water that's still in the kettle, because it's still warm, instead of starting from scratch. This system can be paired with one of the most important advancements in turbine technology, heat regeneration. What is heat regeneration, and what does heat regeneration require to work? Heat exchangers! The concept behind heat regeneration is simple, and although it isn't required to be paired with a reheat turbine, the two technologies synergize really well. Heat regeneration is the process of drawing excess heat from the turbine blades themselves 
and channeling that heat back into the steam system to preheat or reheat the steam. This works because the blades of the turbine are typically much hotter than the ambient temperature inside the turbine housing, meaning more complicated heat exchange systems that I can't really explain can pull heat from the blades and then use piping and more heat exchangers to use that heat for steam generation. Although this heat alone is not enough to turn water straight into steam, in the case of binary or reheat turbines especially, this heat can raise the initial temperature of the water so that the system requires less energy to fully convert the water into steam. This process greatly increases the efficiency of the turbine as a whole by utilizing what would otherwise be waste heat that was never used. The second version of the steam turbine we're going to look at is the condenser turbine. I should say that often these categories of turbine overlap and work together, but these are the basics. A condenser turbine utilizes, you guessed it, a condenser to return steam to a liquid or almost liquid form after passing through the turbine. There are obviously some nuances that I'm skipping out on here, but that's the concept. The benefit of this system is twofold. First, the exhaust pressure of the used steam is low, making management much easier, whether that steam will be off-gassed, used for another process, or channeled back into the ground. The second benefit is it increases the pressure difference between steam input and output, which means steam in the turbine expands more, generates more energy as it moves through the system. Back pressure turbines are functionally the opposite of condenser turbines, meaning the steam flows through the turbine and out the other end to be used in other applications like industrial manufacturing and processing. This makes the turbine itself less efficient because a large amount of energy is lost by allowing the steam to escape as steam. But, when you factor in the energetic uses outside of power generation, this method is still an effective utilization of the steam in other workflows. Finally, we have extraction turbines. Extraction turbines are somewhat similar to reheat turbines in that the steam is not allowed to exit the system after flowing through the turbine once. Where a reheat turbine may take that steam, heat it up again and send it through another turbine, extraction turbines utilize that steam as another method of heat generation. Thermal energy from the used steam can once again be transferred using heat pumps and fed into other feed water heaters. Feed water is simply the fluid source that will flow through the turbine. This system also maximizes the efficiency of the rig by maximizing the thermal energy of the steam from beginning to end. Of course, this technology can't create a perpetual feedback loop, heating and flowing and reheating and flowing, because there are inherent energy losses that can't be avoided, but the implementation of this system is far more efficient than without. To introduce one more geothermal technology that is widely used in Iceland, here's Grimur. What is maybe special about the steam turbines, the geothermal power plants, with the ones which are close to communities, they are what we call cogeneration. They're not only doing electricity, they also use the heat that in most other locations would be a waste heat sent to cooling towers. So this heat is actually captured for heating up cold water and that heated cold water that is now almost like a geothermal water is piped to the communities for heating the houses. So this, as soon as you do this, uh, the efficiency of the power process, I mean, converting the heat into something usable gets very, very good. Probably more than 50% of the raw heat is used either for power or for the uh, heating of houses. So, uh, so that is special about the geothermal. This is the ultimate use of geothermal energy in the country of Iceland, and it's one of the main reasons that Iceland was able to implement renewable heat and power in the country so quickly and relatively cheaply. Two birds with one stone. This process of combining heat and power generation is known as cogenerative plants and is not unique to geothermal. Coal and fossil gas power plants have also utilized this method of cogeneration, channeling post-turbine steam to heating systems for industrial or domestic uses. Of course, geothermal cogeneration has the distinct advantage of being generally cheaper as well as almost completely emission-free. Almost. We'll come back to it. As mentioned, Iceland has made extraordinary use of cogeneration, implementing combined heat and power in the majority of their power plants around the country where the site is close enough to a community. This system can also be implemented in most kinds of turbines, usually through steam extraction or heat regeneration of some form. 
In places all over the world, cogeneration is being suggested as an obvious method of increasing efficiency and therefore lowering the emissions of power plants like coal and fossil gas plants. Iceland was a bit peculiar, because many geothermal sites were built for district heating first, with boreholes supplying hot steam and water to homes and businesses. Steam turbines were added to some sites later, optimizing the site for both power and heat generation, such as, give me a break here, the Navalier site designed for Reykjavik's district heating. The site came online in 1990, with 100 megawatts equivalent of hot water supply being used in Reykjavik. In 1995, the system expanded, connecting a fifth borehole and more infrastructure to raise the power production to 150 megawatts of equivalent hot water. It was in 1998 when the first steam turbine was added to the operation with a capacity of 30 megawatts. By the end of June 2001, three 30 megawatt turbines were in place with a total electricity generation of 90 megawatts. In this new system, Iceland optimizes its resources as both hot water and hot steam could be produced from the same well area. Without flashing or otherwise changing the hot water into steam for electricity generation, because they have plenty of steam already, the steam and hot water are separated. Geothermal water undergoes the heat exchange process, which, which usually makes use of the shell and tube design, and sends warm water into the city for use in homes and businesses. The steam, in turn, is redirected through a turbine system, where all the technologies we have just talked about are at play. Spent geothermal water is pumped back underground to be naturally reheated and reused, while spent steam is either condensed and sent in the same direction, extracted for use in any of the ways that we've discussed, or simply allowed to escape into the open air. There are a multitude of plants like this built around the country of Iceland, supplying the nation with more than 50 gigawatt hours of electricity a year, while supplying every building on the island with renewable and reliable indoor heating. They even use some of their geothermal heat to heat roads, keeping them clear of ice and snow all year round. There are a couple of problems though. These systems are fundamentally built on geothermal activity, which often involves harmful gases like hydrogen sulfide, carbon dioxide, methane, and others. Fortunately, there could be a viable solution, and one that Grimur has worked on personally for quite a while. Carbfix. Geothermal in general is, has one of the smallest footprints of any like a renewable source you can think of, because uh, the infrastructure is in the ground. So what you're seeing on the surface will be the wellheads and some piping, and then maybe the power plants. So uh, in terms of footprint, megawatts per square kilometer of land used, it's very high in geothermal, I think the highest in the world. So when you see the big windmills, you see the big solar parks, they need quite large, like a footprint to, uh, to operate. Uh, however, there was a problem uh, with the high temperatures here. They're, I mean, it's all driven by uh, active volcanoes and volcanoes have gases like hydrogen sulfide that you will smell. So, here in Reykjavik, with a commissioning of a plant in about 2006, we got strong smell from that uh, power station in wintertime especially, and that caused a lot of opposition, I would say. And then uh, what is so interesting about uh, any process, especially in renewables, is that take your problem and make it into an opportunity. So when I was with the utility in 2006 to eight. What happened is that they would kick off a project that is very well known today and it's called Carbfix. And this project is imitating the mineral capturing of, of uh, car, uh, CO2 and the hydrogen sulfide into the basalts. Nature is doing this all the time. And so this power project was able to actually take the problem of both CO2 and H2S coming out of the power plant to the atmosphere and capture it, mix it with water, put it in the ground, and make it mineralized. So suddenly, our problem has been solved, and it looks to me that geothermal technologies and the mineral uh, alteration of rocks with temperature might be one of the best solutions for storing all that carbon we have been putting into the atmosphere and uh, causing the global warming. Carbfix is a process that has been designed, researched, and implemented in Iceland, but has far-reaching consequences the world over. It's suggested as another method of storing carbon dioxide permanently, and it's not even that complicated. 
Designed to solve the problem of minimal geothermal off-gassing, the technique could be used in many regions around the world as a carbon reduction device. The first step is to capture carbon dioxide, whether it's from smokestacks of energy production or industry, or through direct air capture, which we've talked about on this show before. That captured carbon must then be mixed with water, which is simply creating sparkling water, pretty much. The last step is to inject the sparkling water into injection wells similar to those used in enhanced geothermal sites. The difference is there is minimal disruption to rock formations in the crust because the system doesn't intend to create new fractures. Instead, injections take place at sites where there's adequate porous and reactive rock structures like basalt. This is why the pilot of this project was so effective in Iceland, where basalts make up most of underground rock formation. While basalts are not the only suitable rock structure for storing carbon in this way, it's the most ideal because it's the most common rock on Earth, first of all, and they're pretty reactive. Actually, extremely reactive. The reactive part is what allows the carbon to remain in storage for thousands of years. By injecting basalts with carbonated water, the two substances interact to form solid carbonate minerals in the rock pores. These carbonate formations have no way of escaping to once again act as greenhouse gases. They stay here for a very, very long time. Additionally, the natural density of this carbonated water effectively sinks it to the bottom of underground water tables, which means that this process can be implemented even at prospective geothermal well sites. As long as the carb fix process is allowed enough time to complete, the same well can be reutilized for extraction a few years later, with no risk of the stored CO2 reappearing. This process truly is a game changer, and could be a valid solution to carbon reduction in the atmosphere in the coming years if it's given enough funding and is implemented in suitable geological locations. To cap this off, let's hear about it from Grimier again. So I was part of this uh, process in the beginning, and uh, the, the reason that it is running so well here in Iceland is that uh, the basalts have good permeabilities, and uh, water tables are actually some distance below the surface, so uh, the energy that is needed to get the, the, the gases together with water into the ground is very low. That is, that is one like, advantage of doing this in Iceland, and the other one is that... Uh, the reactivity, the, the basalts, they are hungry to consume those minerals and make them into rocks. So, so, so this is the success of the Iceland story. Just like in the beginning of the hot water uh, piping in the city of Reykjavik, there was this curiosity, there was the drive to do something. And uh, instead of maybe talking too much about it in a meeting room, people go to the site and start experimenting. And, uh, and that could be a good driver for inventions and for finding uh, solutions. So that's one small problem with geothermal that has been somewhat solved by this revolutionary process. But it's not the only one. As with geothermal heating, exploitation of any geothermal resources inherently carry the risk of seismic activity. It just comes with the territory. The risk is not high, and there have been very few cases where seismic activity caused by geothermal power has led to lasting damage. So few that I couldn't actually find any, but the risk remains and can't be ignored, regardless of how small it is. Interacting with underground water tables has risks of its own, ranging from causing slow land sinking to picking up toxic chemicals in geothermal waters. But, as is the theme with geothermal energy, the biggest disadvantages are siting and upfront investment. And statistically, it has, takes between 5 and 10 years to realize. Part of the reason it takes so long was the exploration part, that people are careful, they take small steps, and then it takes a long time. I have been on projects where you reverse this, you do elephant approach and uh, do things very fast so, the, so that then you, can, then you can reduce the timing maybe down to five years, even shorter. So there is a lot of like an investment appetite and risk appetite that uh, is the driver how long the geothermal power will take. Again, in most places, for the power, you need a, a volcano so that uh, nature will make the, uh, the fractures and the faults that are conducting the, the hot water and the steam, and then you get the economic like a power production. These simply cannot be everywhere. Geothermal power plants require a significant geothermal energy source to work. With advancements in deep well drilling, it's becoming a more viable option all the time, 
But drilling also costs money. It costs money to even drill a hole and see if there's a geothermal resource to exploit in the first place. It takes more money to drill enough wells to have an energy source, and even more money to build out power infrastructure. The beauty of geothermal power plants is that once they're up and running, their land footprint is tiny, because the majority of the infrastructure is underground, and they cost almost nothing to keep running. Getting them up and running in the first place, in a location that will work, is always the challenging part. With that said, where geothermal power works, it works a treat, and it's an almost magical renewable energy source. Cheap to run, with a tiny land footprint, the majority of water and steam used in the turbines can be reused or recycled and used elsewhere. It's completely renewable. While gross negligence can lead to depletion of particular wells, there's more energy in the natural heat of the earth than humans could ever hope to use in the next millennia. These power plants even have some distinct advantages over other renewables like solar and wind. Geothermal is a baseload energy, and it's robust. The power plant will produce energy every hour of the day, every day of the year, for many, many years. While solar and wind have to contend with intermittency and have to be replaced almost every decade on average, geothermal doesn't have to contend with any of that. Overall, while geothermal power plants are a somewhat specific technology that can work extremely well in a minority of geothermal locations, geothermal energy in general is key to the energy transition because it can be used pretty much everywhere in some capacity. The plate boundary is a very limited area of the surface of the Earth. For geothermal, uh, it is so exciting. We call it sedimentary basins, but they are almost everywhere, maybe 20-30% of the dry land. So the, the heating, the house heating opportunity is much, much bigger, thousand times bigger than the geothermal power. So again, I hope this is going to be realized uh, big scale soon. I mean, China is doing it very fast now, and I think Europe is waking up. Wow, if you're still here, we both deserve a cookie. This was an incredibly intense episode to make. The research alone that went into figuring out the variety of systems at play was ridiculous. I didn't even cover close to all the technical information that comes with these systems. There isn't much more to say about geothermal heat or power. The technologies have come a long way since the first generator in Tuscany, and Iceland has capitalized on them more than anyone else. It was largely due to their advantageous geography at the time, but with the advent of more advanced technology than ever, it's becoming viable pretty much everywhere in some way. While geothermal may not be the silver bullet for the rest of the world that it was for Iceland, it can still be a cornerstone of our much-desired sustainable future, and it shouldn't be ignored. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. These are my favorite kind, so I hope you like them too, and I hope you've learned as much as I have through this episode. If you've found some value in this one, consider checking out our Patreon page. These episodes take a ton of time and effort to complete, and any contribution to the show that you can make is very much appreciated. Again, a huge thank you to the team at Green by Iceland and Business by Iceland, as well as Kama Thordarsson, who made this season possible. Thank you to our guests so far this season, Stefan and Grimjör Björnsson, who you will be hearing more from in the next episode. I say it every episode, but we really do owe this season to you, so thank you. That's it for this one, on to the next. Prepare yourself for hydropower. Take care of yourself and stay innovative.